0: Welcome to Breaking News with Ben Hunt, Jack Forehand, and Matt Ziegler. Before we start, let me remind you what this show is not. Breaking News is not a show about fact-checking. Breaking News is not a show about saying whose bias is the one and only correct bias. And Breaking News is definitely not a show about calling out fake news. Breaking News is a show where we look at today's top stories and have a conversation around our favorite critical question, why am I reading this now? Drawing on the headlines we're tracking at fiatnews.com, Join us as we talk about what's collectively making us tick with clear eyes, full hearts, and this obligatory disclaimer. Nothing in this podcast is advising you to buy or sell any security or to do anything with your money. Seriously, you should only act on investment advice from someone you know and someone who knows your unique situation. We are not that person. Just one more thing before we start. For anyone listening on the Epsilon Theory audio feed, We have also created a YouTube channel for the podcast. The channel can be accessed at youtube.com backslash at breakingnewspod. And we encourage you to subscribe if you would like to watch the episodes on video. Thank you. We appreciate it.
1: Welcome back to Breaking News. I'm Matt Ziegler. That's Jack Forehand and this is Ben Hunt. We're picking up where we left off in the last episode. We want to do this big story and then connect into the zeitgeist and then have a market section because we're all markets people. So this is what we write and think and talk about all day every day. And this second part is the market segment from the first episode which if you missed go back and check it out on YouTube. The big thing in markets here is is inflation and it's the narrative inflation because inflation infects stocks it infects bonds it infects your alternatives it infects your real assets it infects your job it affects your family nothing hides from inflation and so the stories the narratives around inflation and the market implications there's nothing that hides from this so jack maybe connect inflation and fiat news and let's let's tee up some of the conversation we've been having behind the scenes with ben on this
2: yeah and you know before before i do that then i just wanted to say like once you after i did that first episode i know because matt and you know a lot more about this than i do like it's amazing how it changes the way you see things like i read yeah. cnn completely differently now than i was before like i'm I'm seeing this nudging language and it, it is amazing like once once you see this stuff once like probably forever I will see these things and I will analyze like the way the nudging language and the way the news works differently than I did before.
3: I tell you, Jack, that's been the impact for me personally for spending, gosh, now it's gonna, you know, a professional career, 35 years, trying to look at this rigorously. I'll say two things. First is, you're right. Once you start, however imperfectly, seeing the water in in which we swim, Hearing the words of nudge, you start hearing and seeing them everywhere, right? That's absolutely true. The other thing, though, Jack, is that, you know, I have been doing this for 35 years, and I still get caught up in the stories. You know, I'll still read something, and it'll push my buttons, right? And I'll get really angry, or I'll go, oh, that's amazing. Isn't that – that's so right, right? You know, and it's, it's, it's a, it requires constant, you know, vigilance, frankly, and it can be pretty tiring sometimes. But that's the world in which we live now, where we are being inundated with these words of nudge, what we call fiat news, opinion presented as news, to get us to behave in a certain way. So I appreciate that, Jack, and I, and I think that is. What exactly what we're trying to achieve with this podcast, to sensitize people to that the water in which we swim. Uh, but it's so it's so everywhere. Don't beat yourself up too much if you know you still find yourself getting swept along sometimes because it 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 absolutely still happens to me.
2: And one of the things I've noticed a lot since we last talked is is you 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 brought out this idea about something happens in the market as something else happens so event happens we associate it with cause you see it all the time you know we recorded last time on a fed meeting day and like you said after today you, you know after the close day you're gonna see it and we saw it a ton like everybody was trying to associate like the outcome with,
3: whatever happened right
2: for whatever reason may or may reason, not have anything to do with what actually uh, we put it with the actual with the outcome, outcome. Yeah. but and we've seen it a lot since then you know um with different things that are going on and i know we have a big cpi report tomorrow uh, as we record this and i'm sure we'll see it again so I'm wondering if you could just kind of talk about that as a way to kind of introduce inflation and what we're going to talk about today, if you could talk about that idea.
3: Absolutely. So this it's a great connection with, I don't want to call it theory that we were talking about last week, uh, with last episode, because theory sounds very dry and formal, right? What we were talking about last week was, how does this work? You know, because we can measure it. You can actually look at the words and measure the grammatical structures and linguistic patterns to say, oh, I'm being nudged. I'm being pushed in a certain direction. There are real patterns you you can identify here. And one of the patterns we talked about, to your point, was, you know, we like to call it implied causality, right? And you'll see it in an article, you'll see it in a sentence, you'll see it in a paragraph, you'll see it in a headline. X happens, stocks go up, stocks go down, as, that's always the, or one of the the frequent connecting words, as, you know, Fed meets, or as we're, today, right, while we're recording this, market's down a bit, market's down a bit. And so what we're seeing, I'm looking at the Bloomberg headline right now, stocks under pressure as traders wait for CPI report tomorrow. Right? You might, if you were looking at this a little skeptically, say, well, you know, bond prices aren't moving today. You would think bond prices might move a little bit more even than equities on a CPI report. So but you can't write that headline, bonds doing nothing as, you know, as we wait for the CPI report tomorrow. No, when something happens, stocks are down, you have to say why. that's what all media tries to do. They have to tell you why. And they'll make it up. That's what you have to do. You have to present a why, whether it's true or not, who knows, present the why, because that's what we humans are always going to media to look for. The, why. Is
1: the brightest Is the brightest light right now, the why, just the idea that we all care about inflation, just tie that back to common knowledge, like... The only obvious why is there's a
3: CPI report tomorrow and we are all but moths. Exactly. I mean, you can't just sit there. We talked about this last week and say, well, it's just variance. You know, stocks go up, stocks go down. I don't know. (laughs) Although, almost all the time, that's it. That is actually it. There is no causality. It's variance. Stocks go up, stocks go down. Things happen. right. But there's no story there. There's no audience for that. So you have to present the why. And while we've got something on the brain like inflation and on the brain for good reasons. You know, Matt, to your point about, you know, how inflation takes over everything. I, um, yeah, I had the chance first time in my life to go down to uh, Buenos Aires a couple of weeks ago. Uh, my daughter was working down there, and so I, you know, like I say, never been down there. Never been to Argentina in my life. And what was so striking to me, and I had heard this from my friends from South America talking about either growing up or their their lives there now, about how inflation permeates everything. But I'd read it or I'd heard it, I hadn't really experienced it till I was there. And it's amazing. Every decision you make, all of the day-to-day frictions that are caused by, you know, inflation. Uh, do, I, you know, do I change my dollars for pesos? I'd like to, but the biggest bill in circulation is like a $2 bill. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 can I, should I pay for cash here? Do I carry around a stack of, you know, 1,000 peso notes? It's amazing how it it pervades everything in life once inflation takes root. So well, it's it, it's good that we're you know we're focused on it and it's meaningful. Um, but that is top of mind, and so that's the why. That's always going to be the why in this environment. Well, you just say
1: because it's it's an economic and it's a behavioral economics term that we use all the time, and that's this word friction. Give two seconds on friction in that thing, on just making a decision in Buenos Aires and the difference between having friction but versus not having friction.
3: I just mean it in the very plain sense of the word here that you're right, it's, there's a you know, meaning for it, you know, friction and the like. I just mean it's just, like, it's just a hassle. It's a, it's a needless hassle, right? And, and we're very lucky I think most of our listeners are here in the United States or are similarly situated in some, you know, well-off uh, Western country that's, that's not wrestling with whatever it is in Argentina now, you know, high single digits per month, right, inflation. It just permeates everything. It's just a real hassle, not just for people visiting, but for daily life there. It's just it's just a friction and a hassle to life that shouldn't have to exist. That shouldn't have to exist. And I, I uh, anyway, I have a, I have a new not empathy or or new concern about inflation, but I have a, a lived experience now, however brief and however shallow, that helps me understand things well, you know, that, that a lot better. Going back to your original point, Jack, about Seeing the world better, I, I. This is the value of lived experiences, right? It's 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 the value of not just reading something or or hearing the words, but actually experiencing it, and that imprints it on us, right? It it it, it is in fact, you know, this will be a topic for a lot more conversations. I think the real defense we have against the use of words in what we read, the water in which we swim, of messaging, right? I think the defense against that is our own lived experience. I, I, I mean, that's so um, that seems so simple and maybe trivial, but I can't uh, emphasize it enough that the defense to all of this is talking with actual other human beings that you trust about their lived experiences, trusting your own lived experience, and relying on that more than you rely on the messaging of the talking heads on TV or the Twitter influencers or wherever you, you want to use here.
2: To, to your point of lived experience, it's interesting. Once you talk to somebody who's been through real inflation, like actually lived it, it changes them forever. Um, you know, I know on our other podcast, we had Rodrigo Gordillo from Resolve Asset Management on it. Yeah. You know, he grew up yeah, I know in, Rodrigo in, with well. real yeah. inflation. And like, I learned so to your point, like about talking to people who have that lived experience, I learned so much from him because like, I can look at it all I want. I, I can look at all the data I want. Talking to him and understanding what actually, what you actually, what it actually looks like to have real inflation. Not like what we had here in the last couple of years, but like a really, really high inflation. When you talk to somebody like that, it, it really changes your perspective. 100%
3: hundred percent. And so, you know, there, there are lots of purposes for this podcast, right, to help people see the water, the actual language and structures of how we're being nudged. Uh, but, you know, uh, it's also, particularly when we're talking about markets, and we'll try to, I think, you know, future episodes, we'll do a better job of balancing this, right, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have a little market segment. We'll talk more about it on, on this session here. Um, especially with our investing, it's less, I think, what we're told and how we're nudged than, again, trusting your own lived experiences and having real personal contacts with people who have experiences separate from yours.
2: On our, uh, our previous episode, we talked about the life cycle of a narrative, and we introduced this concept of common knowledge. And I'm just wondering, I think a good starting point to talk about inflation here might be for you to talk a little bit about what the common knowledge is today on inflation.
3: Yeah. Well, the common, the, the, the common knowledge right now, what everyone knows that everyone knows today about inflation is it's over. <laughs> right? that's, that's what everyone knows that everyone knows, that inflation is over. Yeah, it's not quite to the Fed's 2% target, but, you know, it's going there. It's getting there. Heavy lifting's done. rest of this is just a mop-up operation. Yeah, maybe the Fed has to hike rates one more time, maybe. But that's the end of the road, right? There's no more of this painful hiking program because we've got now inflation on a trajectory to return to something that the Fed says is is normal, something that we can all live with, that doesn't create friction in our daily lives, that doesn't surprise us with the price of food or rents or used car prices, whatever you want to, whatever surprises you or hurts you about inflation, it's over. That's a message that Wall Street is happy to nudge you towards. It's absolutely the story that the White House wants to nudge you towards. That's Bidenomics, you know, and What what I believe in my heart and in the data is that this story is not true, that in fact inflation is – that genie has not been put back into the bottle. The last mile of controlling inflation is not a mop-up operation. It's actually 90% of the work. And – Interestingly, right, the very act of saying that inflation is over makes it far more likely that inflation comes roaring back. That again, The very act of having a story that inflation is over makes it far more likely that inflation comes roaring back. And that's the, I was going to use the word, you know, perverse impact of story and narrative nudging. Um, but it's, I can't really call it perverse. That, that is the way that narrative and nudging works when we're talking about something that is embedded within human behavior, like what am I willing to pay for these goods and services? What do I charge for my labor or for whatever I do? What, what do I think home prices are going to be a year from now? The economy, the world, runs on optimism, right? That we're going to be successful, that prices will go up, that I'm going to make money, all of this stuff. A deflationary world is a miserable world. An inflationary world is an optimistic world, right? which is why Wall Street loves it, which is why the White House loves it, all that, right? You want a little inflation. You just don't want the cycle of inflation and the impact that has on savings, the impact that has on fixed income, both as a recipient of fixed income, if you're on Social Security, and also an owner of fixed income, right, instruments, if you're an investor or a bank, all of those things, you know, you want a little inflation and you want the optimism of inflation, the expectation that, yeah, things are going to be getting better. Prices go up without the actual reality of inflation, as we were talking about earlier. So the, the seeds of the story actually make it so much harder to put the genie back in the bottle and actually make it so much easier for the genie to come roaring back up.
2: You mentioned that, you know, the White House is pitching this whole idea, the narrative inflation is over. Sure. Wall Street is pitching the idea inflation is over. What's the Fed doing right now? I mean, for a long time, they talked about higher for longer, and they they seem to be pushing. You know, rates are going to keep going up. I mean, maybe there's a little bit of a crack in that right now, but what's the role they're playing in kind of no, shaping no? The I mean, I right
3: their story is still higher for longer, right? B- both because that is, um, the truth. Right? They they trust me. They understand that this is no mop up operation. That, in fact, to get inflation actually down to 2% would require, uh, you know, I'll say significantly even higher than we have now and for a lot longer than anyone's thinking. That that, that, that last mile of controlling inflation is 90% of the work. Not, it's not, you know, it's, that's the real hard part of this. But at the same time, right, the economy is working fine. Right and 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 ultimately, if you're on the Federal Reserve, that's what you want. You want people to be happy. You want you want people to say, "Oh, you're the hero. You really managed this. It's a soft landing and all like that." And God, I hope it is. But what I'm saying to everyone, right, is that the story of inflation is over before inflation is actually over, makes it so much more likely that inflation comes roaring back. And Jack, we are seeing that in the real world right now. You're seeing that in energy prices. You're seeing that in home prices. Right? Home prices are no longer going down. Home prices are now going up. You're seeing this all, all, all sorts of areas, right? Wages continue to go up. Pricing continues to go up from corporations. None of that has abated. But the way we measure inflation with the CPI, and in particular with what's called owner's equivalent rent, right? This is the way that home prices get into our CPI numbers. And, and the way it's calculated is, oh, what would it cost you to rent out the home that you own, <laughs> right? It's, you know, convoluted and all of that, but they don't take home price is directly into account. It's Constructed into what call is what's called owner's equivalent rent. And the way this is constructed means that there's a long lag with what's actually happening with home prices before it gets reflected in the numbers. And shelter, owner's equivalent rent, is a huge portion of our inflation calculation, particularly the core inflation calculation, which is to your question, what is the Fed looking at? It's it's these core measures, principally looking at that. Right now, owner's equivalent rent because of this long lag is going to be pushing down the official CPI numbers for quite a while. It's not going to reflect the current now uptick in home prices, I think for another six months, maybe nine months. So the story of inflation is over, it's going to be a little more challenged, right? It's going to be more difficult to show a decline in inflation from the current, whatever, 3.2 headline, high, you know, 4.8, 4.9% core. I think it flatlines from here. I don't think it actually starts going down. But the story of inflation is over you can still say, oh, well, you know, it's just temporary while well, we're just kind of flatlining here.
1: You mean transitory.
3: Transitory. Right, right, right. We've gone from transitory inflation. It'll be kind of a a, a transitory, uh, I guess it's yeah, still transitory inflation, right? Uh, but now it's the market saying it rather than the Fed saying it. And it's right. the White It's the House
1: kids it. in the back seat saying, are we there yet? Are
3: we and there the yet? Oh, I love that. Dad yelling. Fact. That's perfect. And so – the more that we say that story of, okay, it's transitory, it's going away, A, the more it encourages people to say, well, that I want to raise. B, I think I should raise the price of my home that I'm going to sell. If you're going to sell it, because how are you going to sell it You know, with your mortgage at a 3% fixed mortgage, you're not going to sell because you can't get a mortgage anywhere close to that. So supply stays constrained expectations of happy days here again go up, driving all these inflationary behaviors because we're telling the story. The data is not going to show a resurgence in inflation. It's not going to be obvious to everyone that inflation is back with a vengeance until the CPI number starts to significantly go up again. And I don't think that happens until like six months from now. But by the time that happens, it's going to be way too late then to control it. And what that means then is that the Fed is forced not to say, "Oh, it's one more hike and we're done." But they may well be forced to say, "No, we've actually got to go on a new series of price hikes," and that wrecks every investment portfolio on the planet. <laughs> right? That that is the we talk about it in investing a lot of time. What's the max pain scenario? What outcome would cause the most pain for the most people? That's it. Resurgent inflation after you've been lulled to sleep by the story of inflation is over. That is the max pain scenario for, I'm pretty sure, every investor and every asset owner on earth.
2: And when might we see that narrative start to bubble up? I mean, one of the things I've learned from you is I, I can look at the data all I want, but the narrative around the data is really what I need to worry about. Um, So, like, how might that process work of that narrative starting to bubble back up for higher inflation? How might it relate to what's going on with CPI and all the other reported data we see?
3: Yeah, I, I mean, typically you see a couple of things that often trigger what we've talked about in the last uh, segment as uh, political entrepreneurs. Who say, hey, who start beating the table say, hey, inflation's a problem, inflation's a problem, inflation's a problem. Uh, and I think there are no shortage of political entrepreneurs, especially going into the election of next year. So I, I think that the, the specific trigger of that often happens around um, uh, gas prices, right? And what we're seeing in crude and gasoline is we are, at least in crude prices, we're now out of the trading range. I think uh, West Texas Intermediate is like WTI, I think it's uh, 83, 84 bucks today, right? Highest it's been in almost a year. What's interesting, we find when we look at the, the stories around oil and energy markets, is that We're not seeing so many stories saying, oh, my God, it's going up to $100, which, again, like I was saying earlier, the story, once it really gets out there, it kind of works in the opposite direction of the story. So when you have a story that's out there saying, oh, inflation's over, that actually ends up supporting more inflation. When you get lots of stories saying, oh, my God, oil is crazy high, that actually makes it more difficult for oil to go a lot higher. We're not seeing those stories yet. So from a narrative perspective, I think that the price of oil can go higher still. And once you get to like $90 crude, gasoline prices, like say that are already about as expensive as they've been in, I don't know, nine months or so. Those are the kind of triggers that can get a story going about, oh my God, inflation is back. So I think that's, that's, the most likely scenario short of six months from now when the increase in home prices starts getting reflected in the CPI numbers and you start getting more upside surprises on the CPI numbers so that everybody says, oh, my God, inflation really is back. For your portfolio, though, right, if you wait until you know, six months from now where it's reflected in reality, it's kind of too late. Right, you don't want to, you can't be too early in adjusting your portfolio, because if you try to hedge from inflation right now, where the dominant narrative is, oh, inflation's over. You know that's an expensive price to pay in your portfolio. It really is. Um, but if you're so late that you wait until it's, you know, already in the numbers then you'll take most of the damage then before that happens. The the trick is, and this is always the trick with timing, right? You can't be early because if you're early with a negative view on anything, you're just wrong. But if you wait until after it happens, it's really hard to adjust after the fact. That is the life of of modern-day investing when inflation is at the door.
2: I'm just wondering when you look at your data, because you have a very unique position here, and you're actually seeing real world data as you look at articles and you look at nudging language. What will you be looking for as you kind of see whether inflation is, you know, the inflation narrative is building up again? Can you just talk about behind the scenes, like the types of things you're looking for in the news?
3: 100 percent. I'll give you another example that links to that uh, conditionality or implied causality um, a Fiat News. Uh, Last week, I forget, it was Thursday or Friday. Um, S&P was down about 1%. Stocks were down. It was the day after Fitch had downgraded the U.S. government from AAA to whatever the, the Fitch rating system is, AA+, whatever, whatever their system is. And the headlines after the markets closed after the S&P was down 1% was, stocks get hammered as Fitch downgrades the U.S. Perfect example of this kind of implied causality that we're talking about. Now, let me tell you, in reality, in the real world, nobody cares about Fitch downgrading the United States. It does not matter. There are no forced sellers from this downgrade Like, you know, it matters when Fitch or S&P, you know, when they downgrade a bank. Man, we saw that with First Republic, Silicon Valley Bank, all this. That matters. There's nothing riding on, oh, the U.S. by Fitch is either AAA or AA+. Nothing. I remember in,
1: it was, I think, 2011, last time we went through the downgrade, right? And I remember some institutional clients having to like update investment policy statements. And they were like, "Ugh, this is annoying. This we don't is annoying. Have to We don't want to have to change our portfolios just because Moody's who just did us dirty for the financial crisis. Yeah. So they updated everything in 2011. And that's such a valuable point. This isn't, This isn't a panic attack. This is a legal
3: nuisance. So real world, Jack, I promise you that downgrade had no impact on the S&P 500 being down 1%. These were two events. Stock's down. we got to say why Fitch downgrades the US. So that's a good example of what I'm talking about. And I will tell you that one of the things we're looking for is to see whether that Fitch downgrade has an impact in narrative world? I promise you it had no impact in real world. What's really interesting to me, though, is will that have an impact in narrative world? See, stories and events like Fitch downgrading the United States or, you know, what's, you know, Bloomberg says, stocks down as Fitch downgrades the United States. Think of that as a little snowball on top of the hill. And when Bloomberg wrote that headline, they pushed the snowball right over the hill. Now, most story, stories get made into little snowballs and pushed down a hill a hundred times a day. Right? There are dozens of headlines in Bloomberg every day, and dozens of headlines from CNBC, and, and all the rest. All these little snowballs are pushed off the hill, and most of them. Roll for like 24 hours and they're done. That's it. That's it. Sometimes though, the snowball picks up speed and it starts to roll. And it's like those old cartoons, the snowball rolling down the hill. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger and starts knocking things down and ends up creating an enormous avalanche. In a nutshell, that's what we do with our narrative analysis. Right. What we're trying to look for are the little snowballs that pick up speed into being bigger snowballs and start rolling downhill. Fitch downgrade in reality, who cares? Fitch downgrade combined with, Bill Ackman comes out and says, I'm shorting the 30-year long bond of the United States. Fitch downgrade comes out at the same time where the Bank of Japan says, oh. You know what? We've been controlling our interest rates, our long-term interest rates. And we will buy everything to keep them to a certain level. But now we actually have some inflation too. So we're going to raise our allowable limit. Go ahead, market. Do what you want to do. We'll take the limit from 50 basis points on a 10-year yen bond. That was going to be our limit, and we're going to just buy it to keep it down below 50 basis points? Eh, you know, if it gets between 50 basis points and 1%, eh, we'll probably let that go. You combine those three things, which I'll describe as, all right, Fitch downgrades the U.S., creates stories from what we call bond vigilantes investors who claim, oh my, oh, my God, I'm really worried about the you know long-term fiscal health of the United States, political entrepreneurs who similarly say, oh, my God, all this spending, you know, we've got to control it. And we do. I agree with all that. But it's the story of that plus what's happening in Japan. All of these stories right now are little snowballs, but I can absolutely see all of these little stories combining into one larger snowball, and it's all about do central banks control interest rates? Do they control that inflation genie? And we've already got a snowball that's a pretty big size about inflation and resurgent inflation and the like. I think that's going to grow over time as price of oil goes up, as home prices over a period of months, start getting reflected and contributing to CPI scores. You put all these snowballs together, Jack, and that's when an avalanche happens and markets in your portfolio get smoked. So that's what we try to do. We are, we're, we're, we're snowball trackers. That's, that's, the, that's the best way I can describe it. So, so take, us, take
1: us to Japan for a second, and uh, I'm going to resist in, invoking the entire thing for all the complexity of this, but I, I'm I'm feeling right now, like the bank of Japan and yield cur- curve control and all this stuff is the ultimate, that old Bill Cosby snowball sketch of like, you take the snowball you want to hit your enemy with and you hide it in the freezer and yield curve control kind of took this idea that you can't peg a price. That's always a bad idea for a central bank to peg a price. You get into trouble, but you can peg a yield What's, what's wrong with that? What could go wrong? Yeah. What's the snowball in Japan maybe starting to roll off Mount Fuji right now?
3: The clearest example I've got. So, so this gets back to the whole idea of story and the difference with reality. Because in reality, Matt, I think the Bank of Japan probably can control interest rates. The reason I say that is they already own almost all of their long-term government issued debt. Right? Then they're no they're not squeamish about monetizing the debt in Japan. You know, this is all you know no no, oh my God, you can't monetize the debt. You can't print dollars or yen and just buy the debt that the government has. Well, that's exactly what well every every country has done effectively. The United States uses cutouts in the form of, you know, primary dealers. That's a whole other story. The Bank of Japan just buys it. And they've bought pretty much all of it, all of the long-term debt. I forget what the numbers are. You know, uh, you know, the 30-year bond, you know, it's such a thin market. I think they own like, you know, 98% of that already. 10-year, I, I, somebody can double-check on I me, mean, maybe it's like 90%. They already own it. So in real world... You know, if anybody can fix that market, fix the yield at a certain amount, it's the Bank of Japan. But that's real world. And if narrative world, if a new story comes out that the Bank of Japan is not credible, that the Bank of Japan is weak, that the Bank of Japan is fighting a tide that they cannot withstand – If the Bank of Japan is the Bank of England, circa 1992, when they tried to fix, this was an exchange rate, it's called the ERM, exchange rate mechanism, we don't have to get into all the details, but what's the story was, Bank of England has no credibility, George Soros and Stan Druckenmiller, you know, they're the bond vigilantes who can, you know, stick it to them. If that becomes the story around the Bank of Japan, then they lose. Then it doesn't matter about real world. Narrative world and a powerful story will always trump this stuff. So that is exactly what what, what we are trying to do and, and and is why I think it's so important. Yes, you've got to focus on the fundamentals in real world. You've also got to know what's
2: happening in narrative world. It seems to me like that is probably the most important story in the world right now in terms of central banks in general and their ability to control inflation, their ability to control rates, because if, if the narrative gets out that they can't, if the world loses confidence in them, then you've got a huge problem. So that, it seems to me like that would be maybe the story to be tracking right now as we kind of look forward.
3: That is the, the under, you know, you talk about, you know, earthquakes from plate tectonics, right? The, the. The plate tectonics of our investing world is the—and and by that I mean, you know, it's the most prevalent common knowledge in the world. We all know that we all know that central banks can control asset prices, that they are omnipotent, that they are all-powerful, not omniscient, not all-knowing. They make mistakes. Right. That's that's fine. Right. But the core idea is that when the shit hits the fan, the central bank can fix it, that the central bank can control inflation, that the central bank can avoid runaway interest rates either directly by like Bank of Japan buying the long dated securities or indirectly, as we have in the United States and, 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 and Europe. If that belief is shattered, Jack, then Katie, bar the door. Then Katie, bar the door. That is the biggest risk. I think is very unlikely. But that is the avalanche that if all these little snowballs become one big snowball, that's the avalanche to really be concerned about. That's exactly right. I don't think it's going to happen. Do run, please. I don't want I, but we have to have the tool set to identify it happening before it actually happens. right it's, it's not being a doom and gloomer and saying, "Oh my God, you know, the Bank of Japan, you know this is a catastrophe and short everything. so that that's not it. But it's being clear-eyed enough to recognize that. If the Federal Reserve is faced with resurgent inflation and they have to move to a new hiking program, meaning they have to come out and say, no, it's another four or five hikes, folks. Sorry, we're going to keep hiking like every meeting or every other meeting until we get to six and a half, six and three quarters. That not only wrecks asset prices, but it also shakes the confidence that anyone can have that the Fed has got this under control. So, yes, it's the Bank of Japan and it's the Fed, which I think are the two focal points for threats to this core er narrative you are so er- an er something is the primordial thing, right? So, the er narrative is that central banks are large and in charge and if that gets threatened, everything's built on that.
2: And just, just one more point on that. I think it's interesting. You know, one of the things we're learning is their tools are not as great with dealing with inflation as they were with deflation. You know, when I first became familiar with you was back before COVID, and you were talking to the podcast and you were basically saying, listen, there is no deflationary shock that the government can't deal with. Like whatever what are- it is. And then you were proven completely right because we got a massive deflationary shock and they dealt with it. But it's interesting, like, I think we're all learning because none of us have seen, or at least I haven't seen inflation in my career. The tool set may not be as good as it comes to dealing with the inflation as it was to dealing with deflation.
3: A hundred percent, Jack. And the, the toolkit, the real world toolkit, is the bluntest of blunt instruments. You've got to – it is it is taking a flamethrower to kill a mosquito, right? I mean, it 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 just is. It is that – it is that – blunt and and powerful, whether you're talking about trying to fix deflation, right, to to create inflation in the market. I mean, look at what we did. We took interest rates down to zero, below zero in so many countries, below zero. Buy everything, buy trillions and trillions of dollars worth of assets to make the price of everything go up. covid talking about that deflationary shock of of the pandemic. Uh, Well, let's bring the fiscal government into it, too, and let's give out trillions of dollars. Helicopter money. That's what it took. Now imagine what it takes to contain inflation. And that's why I said that last mile, putting the genie back into the bottle at 2%, that's not the mop-up operation. That's the hard part. And because we've kind of declared victory before we even start the hard part, well, if you thought it was painful getting inflation under control uh, in that first round, round two, once you've lost confidence, um, yeah, that is not pretty.
1: So I'm going to do my best stab at uh at summarizing this journey today. Good man take my best stab at this. So we opened up with this idea of once you see the water, you you can't unsee it. And it's, I'm going to introduce this is my word on this, but I, I wrote it down several times because we talked about this. You learn from your own experience. And I'm thinking in terms of you have to become not a bond vigilante or one of those, you have to become a narrative vigilante. There you go. There's, I love this it. This is yes. on you. Yeah. It's, it's, there is no Batman without Bruce seeing what happens to his parents, right? So as narrative vigilantes, it's on us to to take the story out of our own experience and figure out how to apply it. So today, everyone knows that everyone knows that inflation is over. And so now us narrative vigilantes are trying to figure out not just why am I reading this now, but what to do about this next. And if we know that modernism actually runs on optimism that a little inflation is a little good optimism. Well, it's, it's kind of like a little toothpaste on the toothbrush is good. But if you dump the whole tube on there, you got some issues and it's not going away. I thought your price, your point Ben about gas prices is actually huge because gas prices as they're a political trigger. Yep. The person exactly. who knows nothing about markets in your family will know when the gas price is up and will not know what the CPI reading is. And we're in election season, yep. so I think that's that's a a huge watch this. And I think we see that in the sentiment polls right now when we look at consumer sentiment versus Wall Street allocator sentiment. They're at, they're at a crazy divergence right now, and this is where we landed. That gaps open and close on stories, and the gap that's been opened in inflation and in rates in our faith in central banks is now going to close on a different story. And that story is emergent, and that's why we're trying to watch at fiatnews.com the little snowballs that are being rolled up, whether it's Fitch or the next CPI report or gas at the pump as we head into election season. These snowballs all are rolling down the side of this mountain right now. And a new story is going to close this gap and because of the stakes of where we're starting from, it will likely hit everything on the investment and the personal side that
3: we know. What's seal saying? The price of liberty is eternal vigilance, right? The the, the price yeah. of a secure portfolio, I think, is eternal kind of narrative vigilance. And I, none of this is inevitable, right? A lot of this, I think, is likely just from my lived experience and of knowing how politicians work, how markets work, and, th- and knowing how economies work. So I, we all have a lived experience we bring to bear. But none of this is inevitable. But we all need to be aware of what's possible and know what to look for to see as possibilities do or do not become impactful on our investing in political lives.
1: We have to, and we will only get through this together. That's the optimism inside of it, brother. right? Amen, Amen, brother. Well, thank you so much for joining us for Breaking News. This is our extended market section from the first episode. So if you didn't catch that, make sure you go back, follow on YouTube, follow on your podcast player of choice. Breaking News Extended Episode 1. This is part two. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next time.
0: Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to like and subscribe wherever you're watching breaking news so more people can find our show. If you know another clear-eyed and full-hearted individual, why not share this episode with them too? Like we said at the top, the media is making us tick, and it's our job to talk. Follow the headlines at fiatnews.com. Follow Ben at epsilontheory.com and at epsilontheory on Twitter. Follow Jack at validiacapital.com and at Practical Font on Twitter. Follow Matt at sunpointinvestments.com, cultishcreative.com, and at cultishcreative on Twitter. Ben Hunt is the co-founder and CIO of Second Foundation Partners. Jack Forehand is a principal at Validia Capital Management. Matt Ziegler is managing director at Sunpoint Investments. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Second Foundation Partners, Validia Capital, or Sunpoint Investments. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of Second Foundation partners, Validia Capital, or Sunpoint Investments. Nothing in this podcast is investment advice.